at a personal level it's quite simple for me you know like cutting girls is not okay cutting boys is not okay cutting anyone is not okay you know it's, it's like stay out of children's underpants it's not too much to ask for there are so many things that i want to say about arifa johri before you hear my interview with her arifa is a journalist she's an activist working to end female genital cutting she's the co-founder of sahio an organization dedicated to removing the practice of fgc or female genital cutting from society arifa is an incredibly strong woman who talks in the quietest tones she isn't loud she isn't shouty but you feel her power when she speaks her voice speaks of the many battles she has fought and won of the strength and the spirit it takes to do the work that she does i was honored to be able to speak to arifa johri and i hope you like this brave soul as much as i do sharam but to me chi chi I'm Sangeeta Pillai and this is the Masala Podcast, a Spotify original where we talk about all those things that we're not supposed to talk about as South Asian women. Sex, sexuality, periods, menopause, mental health, nipple hair, shame and many more taboos. Join me around my virtual kitchen table as I talk with some incredible women from around the world, exploring what it means to be a South Asian feminist today. Before we begin, I'd like to say that this interview contains some descriptions of female genital cutting that you may find triggering. Please feel free to skip anything that you find disturbing. Hello and welcome to Masala Podcast. Today I have with me Arifa Jodi. who runs an organization called Sahio. Arifa, hi, welcome to Masala Podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. Arifa, I'd never heard of FGM within the Indian community. Like in my mind, it was something, when I read about it, it really shocked me. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about FGM within the Daudi Bori community? uh you you know you're right uh, this has been fairly unknown for a long time in fact uh, there is a wide um, perception globally that uh, female genital um, cutting we prefer to call it cutting rather than mutilation and i could explain why at a later point uh, but the perception is that it is largely an african practice and that's where it happens but in fact it happens widely across several asian countries and communities um india being one of them of course in india it's not widely prevalent it is prevalent in uh, specific communities uh one of them is my community the daudi bora community uh for a long time in fact we kind of were of the opinion that the daudi boras were the only indian community that practices um fgc but uh, it's also actually practiced in other subsects of the bora community so there is the sulaimanis the alvis um, you know there are reformist bora so a lot of them you know, they all practice it and we also discovered um a few years ago that it's happening in some parts of kerala by some you know 
we're kind of there's a lot more research to be done in Kerala to really determine where and uh, who is doing it, whether it's specific communities or it's um, just a, an assortment of different communities. Uh, but it is prevalent in parts of Kerala as well. So it uh, and you know you which oh, and the fact that this has been hidden for so long sometimes makes you wonder, you know, where else is it being practiced and we still don't know. Um, so, to getting back to your question, you know, just to tell you a bit more about the practice in itself, um, people might, you know, your listeners might know of female genital mutilation as the practice where, you know, parts of the female genitals are cut, usually when, you know, girls are minors, uh, for cultural reasons or religious reasons. Um, yeah, that is the broad definition. There are, however, different types of genital cutting. Um, so the, the types vary depending on the severity of the cut. So what we typically associate uh, you know, globally when we use the word FGM is the most severe form, which is uh, practiced in parts of West Africa, where uh, you know, the, the labia is cut off and uh, the clitoris is cut off and, um, you know, they, they, they stitch up the labia after cutting to um, leave a small room for, you know, leave a small hole for menstruation and for urination. Um, obviously, it goes without saying uh, that that is the most severe form and that obviously leads to, um, you know, fatal consequences for a lot of people, a lot of problems in childbirth and everything. Um, however, that is the least common form of FGC also. It's, um, uh, you know, probably only um, uh, less than 10% of the FGC practicing population would practice that kind of cutting. The more common, in fact, the most common form is the one practiced in my community, uh, which World Health Organization classifies as type 1. Uh, it involves cutting a part of the clitoral hood or sometimes the hood and a part of the clitoris. And um, that, how you know, it may not be as severe. It's often like there's a lot of attempt to justify it by saying, you know, it's just the prepuce that's being cut. It's, so it's, you know, um, pretty much the same as male circumcision where the foreskin is cut. And um, in fact, in my community, it's justified as, you know, gender equality. We do it for both. Um, but the impact is, you know, there's no such thing as mild cutting. You, it's not supposed to be cut at all. And that's the point. And it's done for cultural reasons. It's not really a religious practice, even though it may be incorporated by some sects into their idea of what the religion mandates. Um, but it's really a cultural practice. Um, it predates Islam. It predates Christianity. Uh, it's not only practiced by Muslims. So, you know, there's this Islamophobic idea that this is a Muslim practice, which is not true. It's not even mentioned in the Quran. So, yeah, it's, it's a complex cultural practice, a social norm. Is the point of the cutting to, um, to prevent female pleasure, what is the cultural reason? that is given? Um, it's, um, you know, in any given community, there's usually an array of responses, an array of reasons that are given for this practice. Uh, same with my community. Um, when 
the most common reasons that they'll give is religion, culture, tradition. And, you know, basically we didn't really question it. That's the reason that my mom gave when I asked her, you know, when I confronted her as at a later point as an uh, you know, adolescent, as a teenager, uh, why I was cut. And it was simply that, you know, that it's done. It's supposed to be done. So I did it, you know, didn't think about questioning it. And then the second most common reason is um, pretty much, yeah, what one would expect, that it's done to control sexual desire, to moderate the sexual urge, to prevent affairs, premarital and extramarital. So, I mean, it's quite kind of, it's ridiculous. Uh, there's no other word for it. And uh, there's also reasons given like hygiene, marriageability, um, you know, this is, your identity as a Bora girl. And um, strangely, nowadays, they also say things like it's done to enhance sexual pleasure. Because if you cut the clitoris, the clitoral hood, you're actually uh, allowing space for the clitoris to be exposed and therefore that, uh, you know, improves orgasms. But again, you know, you're doing it to a seven-year-old child, at least in my community. I was cut at the age of seven. That's the age in my community when we're cut. Um, like, why are you sexualizing a seven-year-old child to influence her future sexual life? I mean, and the clitoral hood is there for a purpose, you know, to protect the clitoris from abrasion and injury. So it's, yeah, it, nothing holds. Can you talk to us about what happened to you when you were seven? I can. Um, yeah, so my story is not very different from that of so many other Bora girls. Um, when I was seven, um, I've grown up in Bombay. I've lived all my life in Mumbai. Um, and uh, I was taken by my mother. I think my grandmother was also there, but my memory is a bit hazy. And uh, I was taken to the house of some lady in a mohalla, in an area which is known for, um, in a mohalla or area that's known for, um, you know, where Boras reside large, largely. And uh, I was, obviously I didn't know what was happening. I think I assumed we were going somewhere else to meet someone or something. And, uh, you know, those are the reasons usually given to children, oh, we're going shopping or we're going for ice cream or something or the other. And... Yeah, like I didn't really know what was happening, but I was at some point, it it was this small house. Um, this lady from the community was there. The adults were chatting for a while. And then I was basically asked to take down my panties. And, you know, there were, the lady was holding me and my mom was holding me. Like of those details, I don't really remember who was holding me and kind of, you know, my legs were spread apart and, um, that lady basically took a blade and did something down there. Of course, it was terribly painful. And the only preparation that I sort of had, and I'm saying this because I've heard so many stories of girl women who's, you know, who weren't prepared at all. Like, so literally they were just grabbed and held and cut. And, um, you know, their mother or whoever was with them did not even like prepare them a little bit about, you know, what was going to happen. In my case, I think just just before it was going to happen, my mother kind of, I have a memory of her saying something like, 
you know, don't worry, it's just going to, you know, it's going to be very quick. She's just going to, uh, you know, I, I don't know what exactly she said, but, you know, it'll hurt just a little bit. Don't worry, that kind of a thing. But of course, I had no idea what was happening and I was crying and it was extremely painful. And um, I don't, my mom says there was no bleeding. And she says that she made sure that only a very thin layer was cut. And after that, I don't, I mean, it's a bit of a haze. I just remember the pain and the crying. And I think over like the next day or a couple of days or something, it sort of, you know, the pain receded, The you know, that, like I gradually sort of, maybe the memory faded out away. Um, I wasn't thinking of it like, you know, in that sense. And I know a lot of other girls I have met and heard their stories where it's been far more traumatic you know, more was cut or, you know, they tried to fight back or, they, you know, so they were, they had to be held down. Uh, so it's, and just the psychological trauma for, I know a lot of people personally where it's been a lot worse. So I well, consider myself, quote unquote, slightly luckier. But yeah. Do you remember what the other women were doing when this was happening? Do you have any no, memory of no. that? You just remember your mother and this. Yeah, I, I don't even remember how many other people were in the room. Yeah. Probably my grandmother was there, but I don't really have a clear yeah, memory of yeah, this. Yeah. When you went back, did you ask your mother at all what happened or why? Or as a child, I don't know whether what I asked her and what, but I, I must have asked her because I grew up with this awareness. Uh, you know, this was this happened at the age of seven, and after that, I grew up with this awareness that this practice is called khatna, and it's done for boys as well. And then I I remember seeing some you know baby boy cousins being who you know, for boys they are cut at infancy. Um, so I I remember seeing that for one of my cousins, um, and kind of probably asking about it. And strangely, in my community, that there's this sort of thing where for girls, when it's done, it's very secretive. You know, nobody talks about it. A lot of girls are told not to tell anyone about it. Um, and sometimes some families, I think they will have a little, um, some families will have a little, uh, not party, but like they'll call a few kids over of that age and have a little meal um, in sort of honor of the fact that this ritual has been performed. But for boys, when it's done, um, you know, for little boys, they cut at infancy. But after that, whenever there's the next wedding in the family, they celebrate the khatna. It's called khatna in in our language. Um, they celebrate it like so. Literally, the the little boy will be placed uh, with the groom on the horse during the you know procession and all of that um, because it's a public celebration of a boy's <laughs> circumcision. Whereas for girls, it's this secretive taboo thing, and. Uh, yeah, I, like I don't, so I grew up with this awareness that this thing is there. It's called khatna and it happens to girls and boys. But I didn't really understand it till obviously much, much later. How has this affected your life psychologically, physically, sexually, emotionally? Has it? Um, the thing is, uh, I would, as I said, you know, I consider myself quote unquote luckier where um, I don't think there is much physical scarring. And I think psychologically, 
uh, I didn't grow up with the trauma of it the way a lot of other women have, uh, women I know personally through my movement, uh, through this movement. But, um, you know, there's always this sort of feeling of violation. Like when you think about when I understood what happened, um, I, I was in college. And I remember, you know, like it, it, it was very upsetting. I was confronting my mother and, uh, you know, I, I resented my mother for a while until I realized that, you know, she too has been through it. And it's really, it's a cultural practice that is perpetuated. Like she's also a cog in the wheel, like all of us are, you know. And so it's the larger system that is to blame. Um, How does it affect other girls? I know you meet a lot of girls who've, had the same experience how does it's it affect them psychologically it's a physically? range of different um things you know um i know women who who still have genital scarring um and who you know f- experience pain till date and these are women from this community you know even though community members who defend the practice will try to dismiss and deny these stories um it you know there are women i know who have who still suffer from physical pain and scarring. Um, the the psychological pain is kind of tied to it. Um, there are people I know who've had, you know, who struggled uh, sexually, um, struggled with getting intimate. It's a mixture of like, you know, sometimes it's because of literal physical pain. Sometimes it's because of the trauma. Um, and, some women I know have had to actually go for therapy with their partners to be able to get intimate with their partners. Um, I I would say for me, the biggest, um, you know, frustration is that I I don't know how it has impacted my sexual life. You know, because if it's a mild cut, then, you know, but it was still an important part of my body. And... Nobody is born with a, you know, we're not born with a uniform sized clitoris or a uniform sized hood. So I don't know what I had before I was cut. I don't know how much was cut relative to what I had. And uh, the impact of that, like, so if my sexual life is fine and okay and seems enjoyable, how do I know whether, you know, it could have been better or worse? So, you know, I don't know. And that uncertainty is something, you know, that... I have had to learn to like push at the back of my mind and not think about it because it, there's no point dwelling on it. I can't undo what's been done. But um, yeah, it's, it's, it, it affects too many women in too many different ways. I can't even imagine what that kind of trauma does to somebody like on an emotional level, on a sexual level, on a psychological level, you know, holding a child down. And cutting off a part of her clitoris when she's that young. I, you know, my brain doesn't even compute. Yeah. So it's just. And the thing is, you know, for like one of the consistent things you'll notice if you speak to a lot of survivors is that relationship with the mother. Because most often it's the mother who takes the daughter. And, uh, you know, the mother is someone who is supposed to protect you. You trust that person to protect you completely. And. Most often it's your mother who's taught you not to let anybody touch you down there. So it's, you know, for a lot of um, girls then growing up, the trauma is because of that, you know, it's like the feeling of betrayal uh, comes in. (laughs) Even like there are women now in their 40s, 50s who still feel 
you know like whose mothers have passed away and they feel like you know there are unresolved um issues of trust that never you know they, they never had a chance to talk about because this was such a taboo subject so of course i completely get that the person who is supposed to protect you does this hor- horrific thing to you or, or you know makes you do it i mean i can't even of course there's going to be trust issues i completely yeah get that. and not to say that it's you know uniform you know like there will be you will come across like hundreds of women in the community who will say you know we have who will say that they faced no negative impact whatsoever you know and they will swear by the practice and say that they're absolutely fine you know whether it's sexually psychologically whatever but you know good for them <laughs> but see that doesn't mean that the experiences of so many other women don't count and even one child is too much you know do you think this um circle of silence around the practice is an important part in keeping it going absolutely yeah i mean that is, is that that was the first step for us in you know around 5 6 years ago when uh the movement against this practice in the bora community really took shape um breaking the silence like that is the first step in any kind of you know such an issue so because it really struck me when you said that for boys it was celebrated and for girls it was the secretive practice your mother yeah. told you not to tell anybody this had happened and then you've just mentioned that there are some women who are saying oh actually everything's fine i've been cut but there's nothing wrong with me which again they're buying into the conditioning and the silence because they're saying yeah what's wrong you know yeah. they're just going along with it because they've been told that that's okay like and, and there are women who don't remember it for whatever reason maybe they genuinely don't remember or maybe they repressed it's so it traumatic. or whatever uh my mother doesn't remember hers at all so you know when she was asked to do it uh, for her child like she just followed what was to be done without thinking and uh, so when i was like in my early adolescence my mother was the one who came across an article in the newspaper or magazine about this issues i think that time there was one anonymous bora woman who had uh, shared her story and talked about this practice and then the article talked about fgm largely in africa because that was what was known and uh, my mom i remember she kind of made me read it because that was the first time that she probably also you know came across something where she probably realized that this is a controversial topic and i think she read it she kind of deliberated over it and then she her conclusion was that you know which is again this typical thing everyone in the community will say you know we don't do it the way those africans do it <laughs> so racist <laughs> you know that you know they do it unhygienically they cut so much you know there's we, no we sterilization just we just so there's is mutilation ours is circumcision and you know and we do it in a sterile environment nowadays doctors do it you know it's the medicalization of the practices another issue altogether but um, yeah so there's this lot of justification from that perspective and at that age when my mo- my mother made me read that article and she's always been a woman of science she's always you know been critical and thought about things so that's why she, you know i'm sure she thought about it a lot and she tried to find out about um you know why it's done and stuff and somebody told her that you know just like male circumcision has health benefits you know prevents certain sexually transmitted diseases and things like that similarly even um female circumcision it prevents uh, whatever i don't know some you know, cancer or some something some such nonsense but i think she 
at that time rationalized it for herself and she told me about it and i also was like okay maybe i didn't think about it till i was finally in college and were you able to talk to your mother about it afterwards oh i mean i think maximum conversations i've had with her only um like because she was obviously the first one when i kind of understood what happened and felt that you know burst of outrage and indignation and frustration like and complete helplessness because you can't undo it like it all came out on her really like she was the one i confronted with and i as i said i felt resentful towards her for a while before i really understood that you know it's unfair to blame her as an individual yeah has your relationship changed in any way because of what happened or were you able to kind of um i think in our case like we've always been quite close um she's an amazing single mother and she's you know really like brought us up by herself in an amazing way so we've always been close in that sense so even through that period i would say that you know i didn't uh, i don't think like that kind of resentment also could have affected our closeness or relationship in that sense but certainly over the years with the movement um initially when i started speaking out she always supported me even though she didn't entirely agree with me but you know she's uh, now i think she really does agree with my perspective on all of this and uh, you know but she's always been supportive which makes a huge difference of course it does of course it does so let's talk a little bit about taking what is a very personal um activism and then translating that into your organization can you talk about that journey a little bit mm, so for me it began um in 2011 2012 that time uh, you know around that time i was already kind of talking to my mom a lot about it but it hadn't struck me that i could take this up you know in a public way until this lady from the community some uh, an anonymous woman called Taslim she started a change.org petition addressed to the leader of our community asking him to ban the practice and that petition started getting some media attention i was i'm a journalist myself i was working at a, a newspaper at the time and uh, you know journalists were looking for community members to interview and uh, you know who would um, and the issue at the time was nobody was willing to give their names and uh, because of the taboo around it and that's when i kind of realized that i had you know that i felt a lot of anger about this topic and uh, i had no issues giving my name out and talking about it publicly and so i just sort of spontaneously started doing it at the time and then you know one thing led to another because then the when you break the silence you start talking publicly and you know a couple of other people are also doing that then you know so that's eventually how we connected Uh, a group of through social media through uh, you know uh, reading about each other's work and stuff so eventually we were a group of five women who um uh, you know who are four from the community one is a filmmaker priya goswami um she made the first documentary film on this topic in india among the bora community it's a national award winning film and um uh, basically the five of us uh, over the years we got together we all wanted to do something about this practice and it sort of organically turned into an organization which is sayo which is called sayo what does sayo stand for uh sayo is a bora gujarati word for uh, female friends like sahelio uh and uh, it basically is sort of um, embodies our um 
uh, our approach towards uh, this topic where uh, we choose not to get into legislation and things like that because as much as we understand and recognize the importance of uh, a law against this practice we choose to work more within the community through awareness engage community engagement dialogue storytelling so you know just um, we really believe that change has to come from within you know ground up yes are you happy to share some of the stories of how the work has benefited women in your community i think so the main thing is you know when you when you start breaking the silence initially it's a bit slow but then once the momentum builds up and you know more and more women start start speaking out then you know um for one the religious um, leadership had to acknowledge that this has now become a topic of conversation the media is writing about it um it all coincided also with certain uh, members of the community in australia and the us getting arrested uh, for this practice and in in both those countries it was like the first ever uh, prosecution under their respective anti fgc laws and you know they happened to be members of our community and uh, so it became like a big conversation in the community and uh, there was pushback which was inevitable there's a lot of backlash uh, in many different ways but that also kind of led to more conversation about it which kind of so we feel like effectively in in large sections of the community the silence has been broken this is you know so because the community there there's a section of the community members now defending the practice there's they're they're fighting a case in the supreme court um in defense of the practice because somebody filed a case are uh, seeking a ban and um, that has led to a lot more awareness and we don't really have like so in 20 um 1516 we had collected data and doing the first ever a uh, research study of you know trying to understand the prevalence rates in the community and um, you know our report was published in 2017 we found that 80% of the respondents you know it was just bohra women 80% of them had undergone the cut and um, we do obviously haven't yet done a follow up kind of prevalence study but we know through anecdotal uh, evidence that there's now you know lots of parents who are Uh, choosing you know they people reach out to us uh, all the time telling us that you know now we know and now we're not going to do this to our daughter so for us that's the biggest that's huge my god i mean that's such a shift and it must make you feel really proud to do the work you do yeah i mean that is like because it's it's a lot of hard work to kind of keep um, you know engaging with a community that's trying to push back trying to trying to silence um and it's it's in general a difficult conversation to have so these are reminders that you know the work is worth it what's the pushback like socially um it's the been community? it's been quite um so this community is known for um i mean there has been a history of people getting excommunicated for dissent uh, but nobody has been excommunicated yet on this because of this topic but there's a fear there's a huge fear of being excommunicated which is why a lot of people don't speak out publicly a lot of uh, you know people who support us are forced to do it privately and there are people who have publicly supported us who have been kind of forced into silence because you know relatives or community leaders local community leaders have kind of uh, you know pressured them uh, by kind of you know the the typical kind of pressure is through family members 
that so then the fear is okay my parents will not be allowed to go to the mosque or my parents will you know be socially boycotted um even if it's not a formal boycott it's informal so and then there are people who've been you know pressurized to apologize in public in the mosque and they've been humiliated so it's it's quite it can be difficult and then of course there's online trolling which um have you experienced a lot of that i all the time we get a lot of online trolling we you know there there are times where we've been invited to speak at events and uh, you know uh, sections of the community will try to you know will contact the organizers of the events and say you know try to tell them to not have this event and say you know you have to represent both sides and all of that so wow that's quite a lot and does it affect how you feel about belonging to the community at all mm so quite frankly i am not a very religious person myself mm. um i um, over the years have undergone a shift i feel there's a lot of patriarchy in religions all religions and uh, so i prefer to not you know be religious but i am still a member of the community and there is definitely a kind of um, an attempt by you know um community members who want to defend the practice they they often try to discredit our credibility uh, you know they in they, what way by saying we're not legitimate members of the community because we don't regularly attend the mosque we don't wear uh, you know the traditional clothes and uh, so you know our voices don't matter like because then we don't we don't want to belong to the community which is baseless because you know no one person gets to decide you know or to define what being a bohra is right i am culturally a bohra and it is my community and i have been cut so i have every right to talk about it not that people who haven't been cut don't have a right to of course they do and we need allies but uh, uh, but uh, yeah it's uh, it's a kind of we get all sorts i can i can imagine what do you think is needed for more say older people and younger people in the community to start thinking differently about this Mm. what would help do you think it's you know i think with any social uh, norm that's rooted you know that's ancient that's rooted in um ideas of patriarchy or for that matter casteism racism whatever the changing of the mindsets is just it's nothing but hard work where you know i don't think there is a shortcut to it you have to consistently question consistently educate um consistently defy and um yeah and and keep and not lose um strength you know so that is and i would say and there's a lot of you know communication involved right how effectively are you communicating something of course you need the people who are um you know angry rebels you need them um and then you also need people who are have ways to you know speak in the language that is more th- that community members are more likely to listen to you know a more calm a more peaceful manner so you you need to kind of have a multi-pronged strategy to uh, you know there are people who are more likely to understand um the problems with this practice from a medical perspective there are some people who are more likely to understand it from a religious perspective we we need to have a multi-pronged approach What is your hope 
over the next couple of years um, with the work you do with Sahio and within the community? What what's the what does the future look like? I mean, the the hope is simple. Like the practice needs to end, and we cannot stop till it does. So. Um, I really, I mean, at some point, I really had hoped that the community leader would um, understand, acknowledge the, you know, trauma that so many women have gone through and uh, acknowledge publicly that, you know, it's it's not okay to keep cutting girls, even if, you know, um, a large number of them claim that they're unaffected. Um, and I was hoping at some point that the religious leader would then himself call for an end to the, to the practice. But that hasn't happened yet. So I, I can keep hoping for that to happen at some point. Uh, but meanwhile, you know, we, we just have to keep at it and find more and more ways to reach uh, larger sections of the community. I'm sure you will. I mean, this is incredible work, I think, what yeah. you do. And it's very important work. And I think it changes women's lives yeah. So fundamentally, if there is one girl that yeah. isn't getting cut, that is... Not just women, you know, like yeah. when um, when women are affected, this affects men too. Absolutely. Like so many marriages are affected and sexual lives of so many people are affected because of this. And at a personal level, it's quite simple for me, you know, like cutting girls is not okay. Cutting boys is not okay. Cutting anyone is not okay. You know, it's it's like stay out of children's underpants. It's not too much to ask for. Absolutely. Absolutely. Wow. Thank you so much, Arifa, for speaking to me. Thank you for sharing your own personal story. I really appreciate you kind of opening up. And thank you for sharing your work. I mean, we will, you know, please let us know if there's any way we can support you. Please share your social media. How can we how can we follow your work? Um, so Sayo is available at sayo.com, uh, S-A-H-I-Y-O. And our social media links are up there as well on the website. We have a volunteer program for those who are interested in volunteering their time for the cause or, you know, and uh, working in any way. Like we always um, post about uh, any internships available and all of that. But in general, I think the larger conversation, like, you know, if, if there are uh, listeners out there who are not from a community that practices general cutting, but you know, this issue is larger than that. It's uh, it's easy to say that genital cutting is, you know, oh my God, it's this barbaric practice that, you know, look at what those people are doing. But instead of othering, I think we all need to look inwards at, you know, the various social norms in our own communities that we continue to practice, like menstrual taboos and whatnot. Um, and just every aspect of the patriarchy. And just question all of it. Keep talking, keep raising, um, you know, questions about them. Keep defying them. And, uh, you know, I think once we dismantle the patriarchy, all of this will end. <laughs> I absolutely agree. Absolutely agree. Here's to a time in the not so distant future when there is no patriarchy. When you and I sit across and we have our chai and we talk about something else. Yeah, like <laughs> hopefully, <laughs> hopefully soon. Soon. Thank you so much, Arifa for taking the time to speak to Masala Podcast. Thank you for having me. It's been lovely. If you've been affected by anything we've talked about in this episode, please head to the show notes where I've listed some information about organizations which can offer help and support. I'm Sangeeta Pillai. 
Thank you for listening to the Masala Podcast, a Spotify original. Masala Podcast is part of my platform, Soul Sutras. What's that all about? Soul Sutras is a network for South Asian women, a safe space to tell our stories, a place to reclaim our bodies, to tackle taboos within our culture, to be exactly who we want to be. Get in touch and tell me your stories about your taboos. Check out my website, soulsutras.co.uk or get in touch via email at soulsutras.co.uk. I'm on Twitter and Instagram. Just look for Soul Sutras. Masala Podcast was created and produced by me, Sangeeta Pillai, edited by Orbis, the studio, opening music by Sunny Robertson, Besharam, Batamiz, Gandhi, Hi Hi, Bad Betty. <laughs>